thank you for yet another opportunity to be in your presence, to be together with others who believe as we do, that we might encourage one another, that we might strengthen one another, edify, build up one another as we attempt to face life's challenges that await us at every turn. Help us to do it, Lord, in a way that will glorify you. Help us to do it, Lord God, in a way that would honor your word that you left for us. And we would be followers of your word. And so then, Lord God, my prayer, as always, is that it would be all of you and none of me. That you would increase as I decrease. That the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, you are my strength, and you are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Okay. <laughs> thank you, uh, thank you, worship team, for blessing us. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as I look out, I, I, I notice that um, we, uh, I forgot to add another praise report and prayer request to our list. Of course, the Browns, and I've gotten word now that uh, it was uh, heart pain, uh, chest pain that Donna was having, and so they're headed to the emergency room to get that checked out. But we pray that all is well with that. As I look out, though, I see Kanaya here, and she's recently had shoulder surgery. Is that right? And she's here with us and looking good and seems to be doing good and well on the way back to full strength. She'll be able to swing that right arm. Not like that, but, you know. Not with that motion, but use that right. Let me say that, use it. <laughs> so we thank God for a successful surgery for her as well. Uh, we, as I said earlier, we are uh, continuing our journey through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we are in chapter 6 today. Uh, let me say this, after today, we have one more stop along the way. After today, this is our next to the last stop in this wonderful letter that has blessed me and prayerfully it has been a blessing to you as well. Notwithstanding the messenger, prayerfully the message has been uh, impactful for you as it has been for me. Um, but we're in chapter 6 today, verses 5 through 9. Uh, again, a short passage uh, unusually short passage for us, and I asked for your prayers on last week with the last with the short passage uh, that that I would treat it as a short passage. I'm gonna ask the same prayer today, but I can't promise you that's gonna happen because there's a lot going on in this one. Uh, <laughs> so Ephesians chapter six, I'm gonna ask you to read with me again. Uh, I know that there are some that have 
that, that, that like to stand, have the custom of standing for the word, you're welcome to do that. You're welcome to remain seated for the word, uh, the reading of the word, either way. But uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, uh, reading from the ESV version of God's holy word, here is what it says. Uh, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of our service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Amen. Those of you that are standing may be seated. Um, as a continuation uh, of what Paul begins to discuss in chapter 5, verse 21, uh, for the last couple of weeks, we have examined how Paul has dealt with this idea of mutual submission. He begins to share that with us in chapter 5, verse 21, and it is an outworking of what he talks about in 5.18, and that is being spirit-filled. Uh, but this mutual submission in our horizontal relationships with one another, Paul sets out to show how submission applies to the lives of Christians in a broad range uh, of life situations is what he begins to do. And we've looked at some of those in the last couple of weeks. He deals with this area of marriage and husbands and wives and how it relates that way. Then he moves on to parents and children and how this mutual submission works itself out or should work itself out that way. And now today, bond servants, and masters. Uh, in each of these categories, Paul is not interested only in the expression of submission, but, it's, but in its essence, the essence of this uh, mutual submission, uh, in its mindset and what motivates this idea of mutual submission. Consequently, each category further unfolds the true nature of what submission is. And all of these categories together give us the full meaning of submission that Paul wants the Christians to both understand and apply. I like to highlight four words from today's passage and use them for a subject to suggest that if we employ these four words, our relational challenges will be solved and our societal impact will be greatly enhanced. These four words are as to the Lord. That'll be our subject for today, as to the Lord. So if we were to imagine that Christ was on the receiving end of everything we did, uh, it's likely that everything we did and said would be different. 
you would imagine that, it's likely that you would operate. I would, to Cynthia, do things a little differently if I, if I imagined that Christ was on the receiving end. So then this is the thrust of Paul's message in these five verses, that no matter the context, if everything is done as to the Lord, the outcome would be one of increased eternal impact and enhanced earthly witness, no matter the context. No matter the context, right? That, that's what I said. But, but the reality is, of course, that uh, context and perspective are important to the human side of us. So I can say no matter the context, but really the context matters to us because we are human. Context, perspective is important, especially when the context is, is one of discomfort and difficulty. Uh, context is especially important in those situations and circumstances. Such is the case with the text before us today. It's an extremely difficult passage to navigate with any amount of sincere hermeneutical integrity because of the extremely sensitive subject matter. It's sensitive. Nobody really wants to talk about it. Uh, nobody wants to deal with it, really. And, 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 and it's proven throughout the course of many who have attempted to look at this passage, teach from this passage, preach from this passage, because it's so sensitive, uh, it's often approached from the employee-employer perspective in order to provide contemporary application for a very uncomfortable passage. This application is often the one that's rushed to because it's too difficult to deal with the rest of it. The, this, 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 though, this, this, this applicational aspect that's often rushed to uh, is certainly present in the text. It's there. We can see that. And not only is it present, it's also relevant. In fact, we'll eventually get there ourselves today. But I think there are some other critical yet difficult bridges to cross before we get there that we don't want to overlook in a rush to get to that contemporary application. First, let's deal with the elephant in the room. There is an elephant in the room. That elephant is this, the existence of slavery and how God deals with it in biblical history. We need to, we need to just deal with that and, and face it and, under, and try to get an understanding of it. It's been suggested that one can view it similarly as divorce, right? Another unfortunate reality. Uh, in that it's recognized and regulated, slavery is, it's recognized and regulated, but it's not God's ideal, similar to the unfortunate reality that is divorce, right? It's regulated in Scripture, it's recognized in Scripture, but Scripture also tells us that God hates divorce, doesn't it? So, so we can look at it in a similar context. Uh, it's a product of the fall, product of the fall. Uh, Brian Chapel. Brian Chapel contends that we must view and teach Scripture in light of what he calls the fallen condition focus. 
The fallen condition focus. The fallen, fallen condition focus is this. It's the mutual, it is the, the mutual condition that contemporary believers share with those for or by whom the text was written that requires the grace of the passage to manifest, manifest God's glory in his people. That's fallen condition focus. Uh, and Chapel argues from this vantage point that we must consider the spiritual burden of the text for real people in the daily struggles of life and not to rush to relieve ourselves of having to deal with the messiness and pain of human existence. Because what we're doing can be messy and painful. The greater intellectual and spiritual task, Chapel argues, is to discern the human concern that caused the Holy Spirit to inspire this aspect of Scripture so that God would be properly glorified by his people. Since God designed the Bible to complete us for the purposes of his glory, the necessary implication is that in some sense we are incomplete. Would you agree with that? <laughs> in some sense we are. We lack the equipment required for every good work just alone by ourselves. We lack that. Our lack of wholeness is a consequence of the fallen condition in which we live. Aspects of this fallenness that are reflected in our sinfulness, in, in our world's brokenness, prompts scripture's instruction and construction. The corrupted state of our world and our beings cries for God's aid. Cries out for his aid. He responds. He's a God that does always respond. He responds with the truths of Scripture and gives us hope by focusing his grace on a facet of our fallen condition in every portion of his word. There must be focus on the fallen condition that necessitated the writing of the passage and the use of of the text features to explain how the Holy Spirit addresses the concern then and now. Chapel contends that every text of Scripture chosen to talk on, to teach on, to preach on, or to lecture on presents a burden. Every text. A, a certain level of brokenness is found in every text of Scripture. He says this, I like it. He says this, he says that every text puts a man in a hole. And the job of the presenter of any sermon, talk, or lecture, lecture based on scripture is to show the listener, that would be you, how to get him or her out of the hole through the text. So that's my task today. <laughs> To help us all see how to get out of these holes. The text presents us with these burdens that the text presents us with. There are at least a couple of holes or burdens in this very passage. One is the issue, I've already said, the issue of mutual submission 
as to the Lord. That, that, that's the issue. That, that, that is the subject that Paul has been on for a little while. In other words, living out the gospel and the lordship of Christ in our earthly relationships. Uh, this is Paul's apparent focus. And he continues to ardently address this focus that he began back in chapter 5. He continues. This is his focus here. This is, this is the main hole of this text. But, but, but there is another hole. The other hole is this, the issue of slavery. That's another hole that, that we find in the text that is not necessarily Paul's focus, but it is a hole, a burden. Paul doesn't necessarily address it. We'll talk more later about why he doesn't, but just know that it is a burden that we see in the text that Paul doesn't necessarily address head on here. But it is a hole that we got to figure out from the text how to get out of. We'll also discuss later as we discuss how, the reason why Paul does not uh, address it and attack it head on. We'll also discuss later some evidence that proves that scripture does not support it at all. Let me just say briefly here that God's idea here and in other places as it relates to slavery is to erase it from inside out through the heart and the message and the model of the gospel. That's what he, that's what he intends to do. So, so, so with that being said, let's, let's talk a little bit about what slavery looked like in Paul's day. We need to really get an accurate picture. Because it sometimes is romanticized that it wasn't real slavery. It was only a form that wasn't really that oppressive. Let's look at what it really looked like in that day. William Barclay gives an account of what it looked like in Paul's day. And here's what Barclay says. Barclay says that uh, it, it, it was fraught with abuse. He writes this, it has been computed that in the Roman Empire there were over 60 million slaves. In Paul's day, a kind of terrible idleness had fallen on the citizens of Rome. Rome was the mistress of the world and therefore it was beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen to work. Practically all work was done by slaves even doctors and teachers, even the closest friends of emperors, their secretaries who dealt with letters and appeals and finance, all of them in Paul's day were slaves. Often there were bonds of the deepest, of, of the deepest loyalty and affection between master and slave, but basically the life of the slave was grim and terrible. In law, he was not a person but a thing. Aristotle lays it down this way. He says that there can never be friendship between master and slave, for they have nothing in common. For a slave is a living tool, just a tool, just as a tool is an inanimate object. A slave is. Varro, uh, writing on agriculture, divides agricultural instruments in three classes, the articulate, the inarticulate, and the mute. 
The articulate comprises the slaves, the inarticulate, the cattle, and the mute, the vehicles. The slave is no better then than a beast who happens to be able to talk. Cato gives advice to a man taking over a farm. Cato says this, he must go over it and he must go over it and throw out everything that is past its work and old slaves must too be thrown out on the scrap heap to starve. When a slave is ill, it is sheer extravagance to issue him with normal rations. Cato says the law was quite clear. Gaius, the Roman lawyer in the Institutes, lays it down this way. May we, we may note that it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over the slave. If the slave ran away, at best he was branded on the forehead with the letter F for fugitive, which means runaway. At worst, he was killed. The terror of the slave was that he was absolutely at the caprice of his master. Augustus crucified a slave because he killed a quail, a pet quail. Vidius Polio flung a slave still living into the savage lampreys in his fish pond because he dropped and broke a crystal goblet. Juvenile tales of a Roman matron who ordered a slave to be killed for no other reason than that she had lost her temper with him. Lost her temper with him. When her husband protested, she said, you call a slave a man, do you? He has done no wrong, you say, but it is so. It is my will and my command. Let my will be the voucher for the deed. The slaves who were maids of the mistresses often had their hair torn out and their cheeks torn with their mistress's nails. Juvenile tales of the master who delights in the sound of a cruel flogging, thinking it's sweeter than any siren's song. Or who revels in the clanking chains or who summons a torturer and brands the slave because of a couple of, tile, couple of towels are lost. A Roman writer says it this way, whatever a master does to a slave, undeservedly in anger, willingly, unwillingly, in forgetfulness, after careful thought, knowingly, unknowingly, is judgment, justice, and law. Whatever he wants to do is okay. And now that you have the picture, let me say that it is against this terrible, despicable, evil backdrop and background that Paul gives his advice to the slave to read in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Before we examine this passage, though, as promised earlier, I'd like to first discuss further why Paul does not attack slavery head-on, and then also four evidences just in this passage that Christianity and Scripture does not support slavery. First, let's deal with Paul. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is first. The reason uh, that, that, that we can say that he does not attack it and address it head on are these. He is first and foremost concerned for the spread of the gospel in Christians and churches and in the world. And he recognizes that if he does that, hopefully the rest 
will take care of itself. He's focused. He's fiercely focused on uh, uh, sharing, the, evangelizing the world, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's dealing with slavery as, a, as an unfortunate fact of life among the people to whom he was ministering. So he teaches Christians how to live within the evil system which they found themselves. But, you know there's a but. Make no mistake. Make no mistake at all. Paul empathized with those who were treated unjustly. Not only does he empathize, he also would and did speak out against injustice. There's a word somewhere in there for us today. I'm not going to go there because my time is limited. But just know this, Paul empathized with them. Not only did he empathize, not only did he feel something, he did something. He, he, he did something. You, he, he spoke out against injustice. You'll recall in Acts chapter 16, uh, what happens in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are called to go over uh, into Macedonia, into Philippi, and they they encounter the slave girl, and they cast the demons out of her, and the people who owned the slave girl were angered because they had lost their prophets from Paul and Silas casting out this demon because she was able to tell the future, and they had lost their fortune and so their anger they bring them to the to the to the to the people and to the to the those that were in charge and they tell and make their case that Paul and Silas had done this and that the, the text says that they were beaten they were flogged they were they were harmed and then they were thrown into the inner prison and you know what happens then don't you uh, Martha it was around about midnight that they began to sing praises, praise songs to the Lord. And the text says that uh, when, the, when the clock struck midnight, there was an earthquake that came that shook the foundation of the prison. The bars were, lo- the, were, 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 were destroyed and the bands were loosed and everybody went free. Prisoner, the jailer comes and says those all now famous words, what he's, he, he's scared because he feels like he's not done his job. He's, fe- he's fearful of what might happen to him. So he comes and he runs in and he says those now famous words, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas then go to his house and they, they, they baptize uh, his household, his family. They are saved because of it. And then in verses 35 through 37, this is what happens. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul, but Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. He speaks out against injustice. Yeah, this injustice was was done on him and those that were with him, but he speaks out on, and and he writes about it too. He says in Romans chapter 12, verses 15 through 18, this is what he says. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. 
Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. It's not always possible. <laughs> but Nate, is not always possible. But he said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, if it depends on you. He also told Timothy, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he says this, all scripture, Ooh, we need to highlight that word all. He says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Would you agree that Paul said that to Timothy? Is there anybody in here that would disagree with that? Now, y'all need to know I'm setting you up for something. <laughs> y'all probably felt that, didn't you? If you agree that Paul writes this to Timothy, uh, then you would also agree that he was a firm believer in all of Scripture. Wouldn't you agree with that? All right, I just set you up because Isaiah 117 is Scripture. And here's what Isaiah 117 says. It says this, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. Part of that all scripture. And then uh, Proverbs 31, we know it as the, 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 the scripture that covers uh, the, 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 the godly woman. But before you get to the part about the godly woman, verses 8 and 9 says this, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth. Judge righteously, defend, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Paul had a heart because he believed in all of Scripture. There's, he, was on, he was on a mission. He had a purpose when he writes this letter. For most of his time, he, he was on a mission. He had a purpose. He's trying to uh, uh, propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he felt like if that would take place, that a lot of these things that were happening would be dealt with. But there are four, along with uh, dealing with Paul, there are four evidences just in this passage alone that Christianity and Scripture doesn't support slavery. Now, I'm doing all this because, you know, in history, there have been those that have used some of this to support this idea, in particular, this passage we're preaching from today. So I felt like I need to kind of build the case why that's not the case, that this passage and no others actually support this evil institution. So what the scripture, how does scripture, just in this text, how, does, how do we find that scripture does not support it? Well, this evil institution, slavery, doesn't exist in the creational order. You'll notice that for the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with what Paul, how he addresses uh, things that were a part of the divine creational order. Remember, we've been talking about husbands and wives. That is Genesis 2.24, right? It, it, that's, that, that is the first. We've been talking about parents and children. All of this together is a part of God's divine creational order of things. He divinely created the family. It's the first divine institution created by God, the family. But we don't see anywhere 
that this institution is, is included in his divine order. Not only that, but the common lordship of Christ tells us just in this passage that, that scripture and Christianity doesn't support it. Uh, the recognition that both master and slave in Christ have a common lord comes against it. And Paul, we're going to talk about it in a minute. He reminds both that you both have because these were Christian folks. Christian servant, Christian master, and he reminds them both you have the same Lord. Uh, justice and reciprocity. These ideas say that Christianity, just in this passage, is against what's going on. The demand, this is what it is, the demand for justice and reciprocity on behalf of the master undermine the slave-master relationship, and thus it undermines also slavery. Paul says, treat them the way you'd want to be treated. We're going to talk about reciprocity uh, later. Uh, justice and reciprocity uh, denies it. And then also we see this idea of brotherhood, the doctrine of our union with Christ and our consequent adoption and communion, communion with one another says that it is something that is not supported. And so I know that is, you know, many of us already kind of know that to be the case. It's like, you know, we, we know that. We know that it's not a part of God's divine order, and we know that it's something that the Christian should not uh, support. We understand all that. Well, if we do, then, then let's move on. Just wanted to make sure we did understand that. And so since we do, um, let's talk about this text and what Paul is doing. And I said earlier that we don't want to rush to this contemporary application of employee and employer. Uh, we'll get there momentarily, but right now let's deal with what is actually happening and who he's actually talking to and the implications for those who were in the midst of this difficult situation then, the slave and the master, or at least the slave. We'll talk about the master as well. What he does in verses 5 through 9 is he continues and continues and continues to bring everything back to Christ. You'll see it. It pops up all throughout this passage that everything continuously comes back to Christ. But let's deal with the implications for bondservants and masters first. In verse 5, verse 5 it says this. This is to those who were living this out. He says this, obey your earthly masters. So then the first thing he says to the ones that were, that were the bond servants or the slaves of this day, as difficult of a pill that it was to swallow, he says to them, be obedient to those who have charge over you. Difficult? Then he says, he doesn't just say be obedient, he says this, uh, do it with fear and trembling. What does he mean? He means have respect. Although you're in a difficult situation, although you're in an oppressive situation, do it with fear or in trembling or respect. Then he says in verse 5, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. You'll notice it all throughout. Christ is the focus. Right? He says do it. Remember I told you earlier, if everything we did, 
we thought we were doing it to Christ, we would do it differently. No matter the context, no matter the situation, no matter the perspective, if we could think, if we could bring ourselves to imagine that everything that we're doing, everything that we're saying, we're doing it to Christ. It would change the whole situation. So he says, as to Christ. And then verse 6, verse 6, he says, not by way of our service, not by way of our service, or as people pleasers. He's saying to people who are in an oppressive place, in a oppressive conditions, that they should think not to obey and to respect only because the person who is in charge is watching to please them. Uh, but he says this in verse 6, not as people pleasers, but as bond servants, here we go again, of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Christ is the focus. Uh, as Christ, as servants of Christ, doing the will of God sincerely from the heart. God, Christ, is the focus. Then verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Doing the will of God from the heart. Uh, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Knowing that the Lord will reward even those who were enslaved. He says, keep that as your focus, that the Lord will. I know that's difficult to say to somebody who's in the midst of uh, a bad situation. No, the Lord's going to, it's going to be all right uh, by and by. It's tough. This is what Paul says. And, and he says, know that the Lord will reward. Just, just continue to have the Lord as your focus. And then in verse 9, he simply says, masters, do the same. Don't threaten because you both have the same master. And there is no partiality with him. Masters, he says, do the same and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And so this is essentially what Paul says to the bondservant and the master. But if it, 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 it kind of falls short for us because, Cynthia, we can't really relate to that. Because hopefully none of us have been in either of those places. So it's difficult for us to find application in the bondservant-master relationship. Because first thing that happens is we turn that off anyway because it's so difficult for us to even think about that we tune that out. And so uh, what is, I told you we'd get there, what is the application for us? So that we can take this, this burden in the text and, and, and find application for us in 2021. Well, it is that application that's often rushed to, the application of employer-employee relationship. And so let's see what we can glean from these very same words that we can leave here today. And whenever we go where we're going tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, 8 o'clock, whatever time, Whatever role you serve in, you can apply this there. Employees and employers. Uh, what Paul says 
here to bond servants applies equally to all kinds of employees today whose labor is sold to another, as well as to employers who have charge over them. Because of the relationship with Christ, the Christian employee and employer should consistently be of the highest caliber. So this should help us in how we do what we do, how we work the work that we have been called to work, the work that we are paid for, and the ones that are doing the paying, how they operate as well. Right? And so Simply put, those of us that are believers should always be candidate for employee of the year. May not always get it, but your name ought to always be on the list, right? It should always be there. It should always operate with the highest caliber. So let's, let's look at it. Employees. When we talk about employees and this word obedient, that we've already given application for the slave and the master, what does it mean for us in 2021? Obedient. It's the duty of the Christian employee to do what is asked of him or her by their employer as long as it doesn't contradict our faith. There are times when a Christian employee must refuse to obey an employer if he or she asks you to lie for him or juggle the books or take advantage of a customer, you must tactfully refuse to do it. But hopefully these situations will be rare. Your normal mode of operation should be to obey your boss. Now y'all gonna hopefully y'all let me come back next week. But that's just what Paul is saying uh, as, as it applies to us. It's not what he's saying because he's not talking about, in a sense, he's talking about employees and employers. But if we would take that and apply it to us, simply put, it means uh, as long as it doesn't, you know, contradict our faith, we sign the line that says we'll obey. Isn't that right? I know I'm not going to get a lot of amens right there. But then, but then, next thing is this. Uh, to be a conscientious employee. Conscientious. Uh, so simply put, it means with a true, have a true eagerness to perform every duty conscientiously and honestly with sincere anxiety, lest you fall in measuring up fully to the task. There ought to be some honest and sincere, good anxiety about doing what you've been asked to do because, after all, you agreed to do it. <laughs> all right? Conscientious. Then next, from the text, same text that he writes to the slave and the master, he says we can find application for us in that it, it says that we should be focused, focused with sincere desire to give undivided loyalty to those that have employed us. As long as it does not interfere with, contradict our faith. All right? Not only should there be obedience and being conscientious and focused, all of these things should be genuine. 
genuine. Rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord, verse 7, and not to man. Genuine, not working faithfully only, or let's back that up. Verse 6, not by the way of our service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Being genuine, not working faithfully only when the boss is around for the sake of gaining favor. You know, all of you know those kind of people. Hopefully you're not one of those kind of people. But we all know, you know, when people that when the boss shows up, they act different. And when as soon as the boss leaves, they back to, Cynthia, you didn't have none of those kind of people at the post office. <laughs> so, so, so wanting to gain favor. Uh, uh, but that should be, that person should be free from resentment and rebellion, working with the interest of the employer at heart and with the real desire to see the employer, whoever that is, prosper. Because after all, that's why we're there is to help. If you are in that kind of relationship, you're there to make sure that whoever is employing you prospers. I know it's tough, but that's right. Uh, And so then, to work not only with genuineness and obedience and being focused, but to work with enthusiasm as to the Lord. That is the motive. That is essentially the motive is to work with enthusiasm as to the Lord for the sake and the glory of the heavenly master, remembering that in faithfully serving the earthly employer, Christ receives it as service done unto him. When we do it, he receives it as service done unto him. And then lastly, the employee in all of this can be confident that the Lord sees and will reward even if no one else does. Even if you don't get employee of the year, even if you don't get a bonus, even if you're never recognized, know that the Lord sees and he will reward. The earthly employer may deny just recompense for labor, but not so of the heavenly master. He'll never deny it. The hope is to hear, all of us hope to hear someday, well done, Good and faithful servant. Don't we hope to hear that someday? Well done, good and faithful servant. The rewards withheld on earth will be conferred with certainty in heaven. Anything you missed that somebody overlooked you for, God is keeping a record. He's got things. And you know what? It's not things. It's just all of us. I know for myself uh, and Clara, all I want to hear when I when I get there and and I'm met at the at the pearly gates. I don't know if that's actually what's going to happen. I don't know if I'll be met by somebody at the gates. I don't know how it's going to play out. But all I know is when I meet the Lord face to face, if he doesn't do anything else, if he just says those words for me. Well done good and faithful servant. It makes up for all the bonuses I miss, all of the recognition I miss. All of that is made up for when my Father in heaven, when Jesus, when I meet him face to face, says, well done. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It makes it all worth it. And so know that. Then he deals with the employer. 
Just like he dealt with the master, he deals with the employer. In verse 9, masters do the same to them. In other words, reciprocate. Reciprocate. Mutual subjection and submission. Here it is again. Do unto the employee as he wants the employee to do unto him. As the employee has given himself over to serve the employer faithfully and to work only for the employer's best interest, so the employer in turn should with equal abandon look after the welfare of the employee. Reciprocate. Then don't threaten. Harsh. Violent language intended to intimidate may win a temporary submission to authority, but it will not have won the employee into giving willingly and trustworthily in service. So threatening is not a good thing. And then to the employer, this application, realize that you too have a boss. You have a boss too. You too are a servant. Your master is your employee's savior as well if both of you are believers. And in his sight, you are no better than he is. Though you occupy a higher earthly position, he expects the same manner and motive in service to him and to others that he has taught your employee to render to you. Realize that you have a boss. And then lastly in verse 9, Here's what the end of verse 9 says. And yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Realize and emulate the kind of boss he is. Talking about Jesus. The kind of boss he is. He is a boss that has no partiality. Christ does not judge by earthly uh, but by heavenly standards. So the external differences of position, possessions, prestige, and power between employers and employees in the flesh mean nothing to him in his estimate of the two. He looks upon the heart, and he encourages the one who is in charge to do the same, recognize what uh, qualities your boss in Jesus has, and emulate those, having no partiality. So then, in the conclusion, I want to share this verse with you. Colossians 3.23 says this, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. If you would keep those four words in mind, as to the Lord, no matter the context, no matter the perspective, if those four words are kept in mind, it'll change the entire course of how we live our lives. It'll change it as to the Lord. In fact, the Lord is our king and ultimate model of sacrifice and submission, isn't he? He is our king and our ultimate model, and if we do as to the Lord, then we will model who he was. Well, the question comes, well, exactly who was he? Christ, who was all anguish, that I might be all joy. He was cast off, that I might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy, that I might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst, that I might attain heaven's best. Stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, a thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might inherit glory, in a darkness that I might have eternal light. That's the Christ that we should emulate 
as to the Lord should be our mantra. Lord, we thank you for your words, for your will, for your way, that no matter the context, easy or hard, difficult or not so difficult, that everything we do, we would do as to the Lord. Help us to do it. But then also, Lord, help us to be interested in the plight of those who are less fortunate, those who face oppression, for those who face injustice, for those who face evil. Help us, Lord, to be compassionate, be empathetic, but to also be willing uh, to have something to say. Help us to do that based on your word. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is one of those messages. Amen. Um, I want to I extend a couple, of the, a couple of invitations to those that may be here. Number one, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you want to extend the invitation that you would not leave here the same way. That you would leave here. You may have come in not knowing him, but that you would leave knowing him. And it's very simple. It's just acknowledging who he is and surrendering to him. And we have, we have um, people that will help you and lead you into that relationship. If you so desire today, let any of us know and we'll help and pray with you uh, so that you can settle that matter. It doesn't have to happen here. You can do it when you get home or wherever. But we encourage you to make sure you don't let this, the day pass without taking care of that. Uh, so do that. And then secondly, we, we would invite those of you that have maybe been visiting with us or maybe you visit with us for the first time and you've decided that you'd like to unite with us and be a part of this family. We want to we extend that invitation as well. And we have people that will help standing, they're standing around the room that will help facilitate uh, you becoming a member of Bethel Hope as well. So let them know or myself know if you'd like to do that, and we'll get that taken care of as well. Uh, with that, I want to recognize any first-time visitors we may have here today. Uh, would you uh, stand if you are a first-time visitor to Bethel Hope? Remain standing, if you would. Amen. Let us know if you would be so kind, your name, and if, uh, if someone invited you or not, just let us know that, and We'd be glad to hear from you. Wonderful. Wonderful. Welcome, welcome. We're so glad. Thank you for being with us today. So glad that you chose to worship with us. Uh, a couple things. We want to make sure that uh, you get a gift. There's a gift that if you hadn't gotten it already, you will. Uh, and then also we have a uh, card that we'll, we'll ask you uh, to fill out so that we can just stay in contact with you and share with you the things that are going on at Bethel Hope. Have you gotten your gift already? Got the card. All right, well, make sure, y'all make sure they, yeah, y'all got, they got you covered in the back. You'll have something to take home with you. Amen. So thank you for being with us. We pray, as I always say, that uh, you have been 
um, as much of a blessing. You have been as much of a blessing to us as, as, as we pray that we've been as much of a blessing to you as you've been to us. I'll get it right in a minute. I'm still thinking about the, you know, the other, I'm, I'm still tangled up in the, anyway. <laughs> God bless you. Come back and see us anytime. We'd love to have you back. Um, if there's nothing else, remember, um, baptism, we need to know if you or your child or somebody, family member, uh, would like to be baptized. We do, I know, have one who has reached out to me that we're going to schedule and we'd like to do them all at the same time. So please fill out the, the sheet in the back with your name, the person who is looking to be baptized, and contact information so that we can let you know. We'll have that, by the way, uh, in the next few weeks. Um, we'll have baptism here at Bethel Hope, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, with that, if there's nothing else, we're going to prepare to be dismissed. Amen. Lord, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Uh, for who you are, for your word that is a lamp to our feet, a light to our pathway. Thank you, Lord, that uh, even in difficult situations, you have a word for us. Even in trying times and difficult uh, things that happen, you have direction and guidance for us. Even when there is a burden or a hole, you show us through your text how uh, it is that we can be set free from that. And so thank you, Lord, for, for that. Uh, and so now unto him who's able to keep us from falling and to present us uh, faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power now and forever. Amen. Amen. Bless you. You're dismissed.